0: Hey, you can do majority of documents. We don't want to overcomplicate with the detail. There are exceptions. We acknowledge that there's exceptions. Things are continuing to change.
1: You're listening to Australia's podcast for accountants,
2: Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm.
3: Welcome to episode 393 of Tax Talks. This is Heidi Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this episode. Today, let's go through the last set of questions in our three-part mini-series about electronic signatures with Jennifer Loughlin and Marcus Henner of DocuSign in Australia. We will cover, for example, the question which state law applies when you have various parties to the contract in different states. Do the DINs change anything? How do you check that a client matches the ID provided? And what does an audiovisual link actually look like? These are just some of the questions we will cover today. Now, I'm really sorry I had technical issues with this episode. So all voices come via Zoom. There are no locally recorded tracks, which means slightly worse audio, but hopefully OK. So here are Jennifer Loughlin and Marcus Hannah of DocuSign
2: in Australia. How do I know which law applies when so for example let's say the lawyer is sitting in one state and then we have three people who are to sign and one witness and they're all in different states which state law actually applies
1: in general there should be a governing law clause in each agreement which specifies which states law applies to that document any i guess probably drafted agreement will have that it's it's very standard boilerplate clause for almost all agreements
2: could you, if you are in NT or Tasmania or South Australia or Western Australia, could you basically then just say our governing law is Victoria and then you should be all right with respect to electronic signatures?
1: In theory, yes. You can specify another location, another state as the governing law for a document. In terms of electronic signing per se, it hasn't been tested because these, I guess, divergence of electronic signing laws for deeds has only occurred within the last year or two. This hasn't gone to a court to be tested, but as a general principle, you don't have to be in the particular state that you elect as your governing law state.
2: Okay, so you can choose any state you want as your governing law state, but does that also mean that you have to go to court in that state? So you make an agreement or you make a deed, and then there is a dispute if you have chosen a certain state as governing law state, then you also have to go to court in that state. Is that what it means?
1: Not necessarily. In an agreement, often you'll differentiate between the governing law and the jurisdiction. The jurisdiction being where you go to court, the governing law being the state laws which apply and govern the document. So it will very regularly be the same because just practically going to another state and then asking that state those judges to make a decision on another state's law is certainly frowned upon and this is quite I guess a complex area where you have scenarios where say if you go into litigation there's kind of a a thing called forum shopping where sometimes litigants will look for a jurisdiction which favours their case and try and bring their case in another jurisdiction you know advantage themselves and judges often frown upon that you can technically do it it's kind of almost a way to get around the law but judges don't like it so whenever you're i think going um, away from the status quo which is the governing law should be the law probably at a state that at least one of the parties is in or the lawyers in and the jurisdiction should generally be the same as the governing law so the the courts of the state that's Government. If you if you kind of go away from that, which technically you can, I would probably seek legal advice because um, there are certain responsibilities which you can't contract out of. Um, certain state laws that apply based on where the signing of the sign is located. So certain states around statutory declarations are very specific state-based laws, and you can't always contract it out of them. um So it, it does get a little complex there. But in general, I guess the takeaway is that the law you select the state's laws, you select as the governing law, will then govern that document.
2: I see. Is it possible to have different governing laws for different parts of the contract? So, for example, could you say... The electronic signatures are to be governed by Victorian law, but anything else is to be governed by the local law that is also the
1: jurisdiction. No, I don't think so. I've never seen that done. So, yeah, I don't think you can do that. I certainly wouldn't recommend trying.
2: I assume state law doesn't apply to federal documents, correct? So, for example, when you sign a tax return, which is a federal document, then state law has nothing to do with that, correct?
1: I'd say in general, yeah, that federal legislation will apply to transactions that are governed by a federal law. So the Income Tax Act is a federal law. So documents signed generally around income tax will be governed by that federal legislation. But there are scenarios where state law and federal law does coexist. So essentially, if state law and federal law conflict with each other, if there's inconsistencies, federal law prevails. But Otherwise, you can have federal law and state law both apply to certain agreements um, if if they're not conflicting.
2: Let's say you signed a trust deed electronically in a state where you can't legally sign a trust deed. So that means the trust didn't actually come into existence because you don't have a deed. And without a deed, without a validly signed deed, you don't have a trust. So you don't have a trust, but then you lodge trust tax return and sign it electronically. So then the question is, is that trust tax return invalid? I guess it's not a question of signature, actually, because yes, you have validly signed the trust tax return, but whether the trust exists or not, for federal purposes, is a state law and not a
1: federal law. I'm certainly not an expert in trust laws. But generally, if you haven't executed a document in a way that's um, enforceable or considered valid in a state, it would be very unlikely that a, a federal regulator or federal organization would look at it and say, that's fine. If there was a federal law that said you can sign the document in that way and a state law that said you cannot and they conflict with each other, then the federal law would prevail. So it, it would be okay. The complexity with trust documents as well is that the state revenue office, certain states you have to get trust deeds stamped, certain ones you don't. But the stage where you have to get a trustee stance, the SRO um, or the, the, the relevant revenue office will probably come in and say, we're not accepting this because you haven't signed it electronically, or oh, sorry, because you have signed it electronically or you haven't done something in the correct manner. So that's one of those instances where a regulator can potentially come in and just say you haven't followed our process. So we're kind of stepping in and not actually you know, recognizing this document.
2: With respect to the question who signed, Do the uh, DINs make any difference? You know, the director identification numbers, do they change anything? I guess not. Or do they?
1: I don't think so, at least not in a broad sense. I guess, firstly, that would only apply for directors. So kind of anyone else signing a document, it's not relevant to them. It is a potential form of identity verification, but uh, DINs aren't, at least at the moment, publicly searchable at least as far as I know. So for anyone except for, say, a regulator in ASIC or one of the regulators that can look up these identity numbers, you can't even use it as verification. So if you were just on the other side of an agreement, um, it's not useful in that sense. I guess to summarise that, it is another form of identifying someone, but in limited circumstances. I don't think practically it's going to be much of a benefit in terms of how we Verify the identity of parties or potentially prevent fraud in the vast majority of agreements. But, you know, there are definitely uses for the DINS, but I think it's more around kind of corporate regulation rather than identity verification on standard agreements.
0: Just to add to that, I think there's KYC, so know your customer, and anti money laundering legislation that requires more checks to be done. And so we know, at least with the banks, that they all have strict rules around knowing their customers and part of those checks involve checking that a director is you know not on the naughty list and and things like that there's a number of checks but there's other organizations that are doing those types of checks and searches on directors to make sure that they're you know appropriate
1: mm, I, I think that that's a good way of putting it it's not so much used to verify someone's identity but it is used to i guess um track it director's history? you know, have, have they been involved in illegal activity in certain companies? Things like that, where a regulator might find that information very useful.
2: To better understand this ID process, to do an example, let's say I have a potential client contacting me. I ask them for ID and they send me a photo of their driver's license. How can I use now electronic means to actually check whether this person is really it. If I run this driver's license into a government database, the government database might say, yeah, we have this driver's license. And then if I have an audiovisual link, it will show me the person, but How do I then make the link that the person I'm looking at is the driver's
0: license? can say that the way that the technology is heading is that biometrics is kind of the way of the future where they're doing liveness checks and things like that. So that technology does exist today. What DocuSign offers is the document checks. So making sure that um, we can look at your passport and your driver's license, check it against uh, a repository government database and be able to say, yes, that that identity has been validated before we give you access to the envelope to then sign it. And the, there's the ability to to capture that information or just to validate it and say in the completion certificate that that was completed. So I think the technology is definitely heading in that direction to be able to have more liveness checks where it doesn't fall on you to necessarily make sure that that's done, that you can use technology to assist with that validation and then for you you just want the record and the audit trail to be able to show that you did the necessary checks it doesn't protect me from mr smith
2: saying he is mr miller because you know if mr smith shows me mr miller's driver's license and then signs with an audiovisual link there's no way for me to realize that it's actually not Mr. Miller, it's Mr. Smith.
0: If Mr. Smith gives me Mr. Miller's driver's license. And that's what this biometric technology is able to do, is able to look at Mr. Smith or Mr. Miller and check it against his ID and do the facial recognition. And they've they've got quite accurate at
2: it. I see. And is that already in, docu- in, in DocuSign, this biometrics
0: check? Uh, on the roadmap. <laughs> it's on wait. the roadmap and it's covered.
1: DocuSign okay. does have like third-party ID checks. So yes. for example, you might have in the past gone to the post office, showed them your license. They look at you, they look at your license. You know, they go, yep, looks like the same person. You know, let's, let's approve that signature or they might act as a witness. Now with platforms like DocuSign, you can have that um, that same process, but it's, a, it's done, you know, almost automatically. So you, you don't have to leave your home. It's done by a third party like ID Now or other verified identity checkers who can look at the, the image of the person who is about to sign, compare it with, say, your ID um, and your know, other details on the system, and then provide that third party verification. So that's coming from someone independent of the parties or even DocuSign in, in that case. There's additional ways to help prevent fraud. So, for example, DocuSign takes your IP address. So, if the IP address is located in Sweden and Mr. Miller is saying he's, uh, you know, a New South Wales resident, and you know, obviously, in a scenario where you might not be able to actually see them, that's another form of, you know, verification. So, you know, the the more kind of checks you have, the easier it is that something doesn't add up. Nothing's perfect, but I do think the use of Technology like DocuSign does actually give you kind of more tools um, to prevent fraud and, you know, identity theft, things like that.
0: And and we do have a number of methods so to uh, authenticate that ID already. So, you know, the first way is the email address. The second, you know, might be SMS authentication or code or knowledge-based question or even a phone call. You can use all those. There's also things like social ID checks. There's... And then we start seeing DocuSign being embedded into customer portals. So, where, you know, a bank might have us integrated into their own customer portals so they can authenticate that the person is be- who they say they are because they've kept their bank ID information more secure than, say, their email address. So you can layer those things up. But like I said, the next, the next, Wave is that biometrics, which provides that even greater level of security. And then, mm-hmm. uh, as I mentioned, we already have the capability to check passports and driver's license against that that database. We spoke a lot about audiovisual links. I've actually never used an audiovisual
2: link. I assume it's it's a button and then it just, I basically sign
0: as usual. It just means it, it's videotaping me while I sign, correct?
1: We're actually using one right now.
0: What we're on right now is an audio visual link. So Zoom's an example of an audio visual link.
1: Skype, Microsoft Teams, etc. So, the I guess the definition of audio visual link is fairly broad to encompass this kind of technology where you're transmitting your audio and as well as um, the visual.
2: I see. And then when I open that document, will the little video be attached to that document
0: so I can look at the person signing? What do you mean by the video attached? So. You're, let's say you're the witness and I'm the person signing. I might share my screen with you so that you can see the document that I'm signing and I can Mm. click the button. There's also, if I were doing a wet signing, if I were signing a deed in Western Australia, you might see, I'd point my camera so that you can see that I am signing this document, or I can show you that I'm pressing the button Mm. with my. DocuSign document on the screen to be able to show you that I have signed it. You can record those sessions and you can save that. And I know in one case, the fact that they had the recording of their Zoom session that showed them witnessing a DocuSign document online that was enough. Ah, oh, I see.
2: So this audio visual link is actually a lot less sophisticated than I thought. I thought it was some software embedded in the signing process and it would it would film me while I'm signing and then it would be attached to this document. So if you view this document and you want to check the signature, you could press on the button and then it would play the video again. So it's actually not like that at all. It's just basically the people somehow watching each other via a
0: video conference and watching the signing. And the law actually states the requirement is actually just that the witness adds a statement below their signature that says, I certify that I signed this, that I witnessed this being signed over audiovisual link in accordance with X, Y, and Z law, and that it was signed in counterpart. And that's actually what, you know, certain laws, I'm talking about one, one in particular, but the requirement is that the witness is certifying that they saw you sign it. By audio visual link, and that that's what's required. So recording it is like an added piece of evidence, and you know, may be seen as best practice to support something, but it's not necessarily the the legal requirement. It's just that you, the witness, adds that statement. And I know with some of our customers, we've helped them build that into the template so that the witness has that statement attached next to their where they sign. Okay. Good. I'm glad I asked that because I imagined something uh, very
2: big and techy. So I'm glad I checked what audiovisual link actually means.
0: So I guess again, it kind of came into play in the middle of COVID, right? So this was something that they put the put the legislation in to temporary provisions, and and it's kind of hung around. Yes. Okay. Good. So we covered who are you? How do you
2: identify yourself? No. Before we look at capacity to sign back in future dating
3: fraud and a few other things, here's a quick word from our sponsor DocuSign. Oh, it's coming. That time of year where stress levels go up by 15 to 20%. Yep, tax time. And when stress is up, mistakes happen. But I'm not here to talk about my screw-ups. Because this year, I've gone digital with DocuSign. Now there's no snail mail paperwork, invoices are getting done faster, so when it comes to tax time, I can just be an accountant and not some paper chaser. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign.
2: The next question is, do you have capacity to sign? And I think that is difficult to prove both in a manual or an electronic or in a wet or electronic signature. Do you have capacity to sign? I guess there's not much difference between the two processes, correct?
0: Correct. But I know that I work with some of the banks and they're under pressure to ensure that vulnerable communities aren't signing under duress. And so they're having more signing ceremonies recorded. And that can be helpful evidence. So last year we released our Zoom integration, which does allow you to have a signing ceremony on Zoom and you can share the screen, walk them through the document and then hand over the ability for them to sign in that session. And it's all recorded in the completion certificate that they have had a Zoom session. So that recording can be kept as evidence. You could even, you know, upload it back into the envelope. Well, it still requires the other person to ensure that the right person is able to sign or has to sign. that's one way that it can be facilitated electronically.
2: That's actually true. Having the whole process recorded provides more protection. After the question is, do you have capacity to sign? The next question is, do you have authority to sign? And I guess that can't be included in the signing process unless... You design your processes in a way that only the people who have authority to sign actually, you know, get to the signing point. So unless the processes are designed and manage the risk, let me say differently, this question about authority really needs to be managed through the process and can't be managed in the actual signing, correct?
0: Correct. You can configure it into or automate it into the process, though, using DocuSign. So what we have, a lot of our customers might need two directors to sign. And so we create signing groups where we've got the directors in and and only those people can sign in these certain scenarios. Or we have what's called, I've forgotten the name of the feature, but it's, it's basically where say the contract value is over a certain dollar amount only certain people can sign that internally uh, or approve it internally so mm-hmm. you can put in rules or smarts that will determine whether that person has authority to sign but it does require you to configure those rules yourself mm-hmm. so it's not a you know a catch all but it means you can uh, execute on a policy internally to make sure that your your in-house signers are the correct people, or if they're an external party, you can create a signing group that says only these these people can sign. So
2: this was all about who is signing. I think what was signed, that is a lot more watertight in an electronic signature, as we covered last week. It's a lot harder to actually change what was signed in an electronically signed document, or it's close to impossible to change that, whereas... In a paper document with a little bit of skill, you can remove the stapler or the, the glue, exchange the pages and re glue it or restaple it. And it takes forensic science to work out whether that happened or not. So what was signed is very clear in an electronic signing process, correct?
1: Yeah, that that's right. Due to amber proof technology is as, as Jen talked about last week, you know what's your signing? So you've got the document in front of you and you also know that if that document is there, if there's any kind of changes made to it, someone tries to, you know, do anything dodgy, so to speak, that your signature then is invalidated um, on that document. So you have that assurance after the fact um, around what you sign in as well.
2: And then the last question is who relies on the document? And that's basically the same like with the wet uh, signature, who relies on the document? is basically managed in the same process. I don't think there's so much difference or I don't think there's a difference between wet signatures or electronic signatures do you agree?
1: That's right. there's no real differences there in terms of the, the signing process itself. that's more around who the parties to the document are.
2: I have two more questions for you. The first one is about back and future dating of documents. Sometimes it's argued against um, an electronic signing that you can't back <laughs> that you can't backdate, but that's you know you're not meant to backdate anyway. Yeah, you can't backdate with an electronic signature unless, of course, what you can say yes, it was assigned on this on this date, but the document is is meant to be valid from this date. So you you can put different dates in, but they need to be on the table. You can't do some dodgy backdating with an electronic signature and that's that's a good thing. You
0: you can definitely have a text box next to your signature box and that can be uh, able to be completed but your actual signature stamp will show the date and time and in the completion certificate it will also show the exact date and time that you signed. So regardless of what you choose to type onto the document, it will be captured exactly what time and date that you did actually do that signing.
2: Yes, and it's the same as future dating. You know, sometimes you want a document only to become valid when everybody has signed, so you just have to say that in the document, this agreement or this deed only comes into effect with the last signature. You just have to say that in the document.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. So an agreement only becomes binding once everyone's signed, so you can't have one party bound by their signature until every other party is signed. Indeed, you can have potentially a party be si- uh, bound upon signature rather than upon the final signature. As you said, if you state in the document that this is binding all the parties upon full execution, you know, that, that kind of clarifies that point. And also it's very common to have say an effective date for a contract as a date in the future, which is separate to the actual date being signed.
2: And then my last question is about fraud. Do you think fraud is less likely now that we are moving to electronic signatures or will fraud just change its face, you know, be done in a different way?
1: I think there will always be people out there who try and take advantage of what systems in place. Unfortunately, that's, you know, that's never going to be completely avoided. I think the use of digital signatures definitely makes it um, harder to get away with basic fraud just due to those additional identity checks, which you know often aren't present when you're wet-signing a document.
2: You said digital signature, Marcus. Did you mean electronic signature or did you specifically say digital signature?
1: I said digital signature on purpose. Um, so an electronic signature, again, it, it may just be a scribble on a screen that you apply to a document. That itself could fairly easily be replicated or fraudulently applied. The digital signature process involves all those additional checks, um, including a a completion certificate. So there are additional methods, you know, due to the, the type of technology being used that I think can help prevent fraud.
2: Yes. Yeah, so what you sign on DocuSign is a digital signature then, correct?
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends which jurisdiction you're looking at because the, the definitions around digital way and electronic signatures do differ around the world. I see DocuSign as a digital signature platform because of those additional checks. It's definitely above your basic electronic signing. In are certain areas, you might say it's you not know, the basic sign functionality, advanced electronic signatures or something like that. but then it does have that actual robust digital signature options as well, which you know would be um, you know a great advantage when you're signing complex transactions or you know more important documents.
0: With regards to protecting against fraud, we have also seen, for example, banks put in extra precautions to make sure that they don't have, say, broker fraud. So brokers not signing on behalf of their clients. And the way that they do that is, again, by embedding it more into their customer portals, making sure that they have two-factor authentication. All these things help protect against the, the chance of fraud happening. And again, it's that authentication methods that you, you use that help protect against the fraud. And it's the audit trail, that court admissible audit trail that helps prove whether the right person signing was the right person. So I do think that electronic signing does help protect against fraud. It's not foolproof because you can have an electronic signature with the wrong person if you don't have the right authentication put in place. Put the right authentication in place, put the right processes in place, and you definitely have stronger protection. You know, we want to make it as simple as possible to say, hey, you can do majority of documents. We don't want to overcomplicate with the detail. There are exceptions. We acknowledge that there's exceptions. Things are continuing to change. But, you know, don't want to overcomplicate things either.
3: Jennifer Loughlin and Marcus Henner of DocuSign in Australia. So this is the end of our three-part mini-series about electronic signatures. We started in episode 386 about the system of agreement last week. In episode 392, we discussed the legislative framework for electronic signatures in Australia. And then today, we went through the remaining questions, most noticeably the one, which state law applies when we have various parties to the deed in different states? In the next episode, episode 394, let's talk about the all-important, reasonably arguable position and transfer pricing, reasonably arguable position, or RAP, as TP experts call it. Benedicte Ulrich, Anderson Australia, will walk you through how to get to a RAP and why it is so important. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.